There's a part of me that wishes I had a happy clappy kind of message. <clears throat> I think I have a message that has to do with something more important than happy clappy. I think it has to do more with discovering joy, which is a much higher pursuit than the pursuit of mere happiness. The other thing that I am aware of is that at this time of the semester, you may be a bit battle-weary, and I wouldn't say brain-dead, but um, tired, perhaps. And I realize that that's because of all that work those other professors have been dumping on you. <laughs> of course, I would never abuse you that way. I do trust that you'll be able to follow along this morning, even though you may be tired. This time of the calendar, the church year that we are in, as Mrs. Rhino rightfully pointed out to us last week, or on Tuesday rather, is that right now we are in between the resurrection and the ascension, which would be followed, of course, by Pentecost. The ascension we celebrate this year on May the 14th. If you want to stick around a little while uh, after the semester, we can worship together and celebrate the day. Otherwise, we'll see you in the fall, some of you. The other thing, there's just a few little things I want to clear up this morning, or some tidy up, because I'm not going to have time to do everything that I want to. The topic that I'm addressing is the issue of suffering, giving birth to hope. And it's not an easy topic, and we could be here for days trying to explore this, trying to trace through all that the New Testament teaches. We're not going to do all of that. In fact, we're only going to touch on just a few things. But just a couple of things. One thing I'm not going to have time for, I, I had it in my original plan, and I've had to drop it for time. But some of the most powerful and encouraging and inspiring words that I've heard with regard to suffering as a Christian have come out of places like China and Russia. It used to be the USSR. <clears throat> and when I was growing up and I was a young Christian, of course, the Iron Curtain was down and you didn't get out of Russia if you, um, unless you had special permission or whatever. People tried to escape in all kinds of ways. Many of them lost their lives. And communism ruled with an iron fist. And so if you were a Christian, especially an active Christian trying to make disciples, uh, you were real trouble. And so one person in particular that I remember reading his books as a young Christian, Richard Wormbrand, W-U-R-M-B-R-A-N-D. I guess I can't spell here any better than I can in front of the whiteboard. In any case, um, if you have time sometime and if you can bear... Uh, really gritty but powerful story. You can hear bits of his testimony recorded uh, on YouTube, and it's powerful stuff. He wrote a book years ago called Torture for Christ, another book called If That Were Christ, Would You Give Him Your Blanket, and just powerful moving stories. It will blow you away with how absolutely cruel the world can be to Christians, real cruelty, beyond my ability. I couldn't take it. I don't think I'd survive. But again, that's speaking without thinking about what Christ can do for all of us, right? And I'm sure he felt the same way. In fact, he did. But at the same time, it'll blow your mind away with what Christ can do in the most impossible situations. 
So I wish I had the time to tell you some of those stories this morning. I'm not going to, but if, you'll, you, if you will Google uh, Richard Wormbrand, uh, it's worth your time. He was born in uh, 1909, died in 2001. I didn't have the chance to see him in person, but he actually did do a speaking tour here uh, in the Maritimes. He was in Moncton. I only found out after the fact. Uh, I'd have gotten myself there somehow or other. Anyway, the other thing I want to point out to you is this. Uh, this business of being a real Christian is very serious. And I suppose that in the country in which we live here, we can get by with quite a lot, and we do actually manage to achieve quite an easy life. And even though, you know, you're pastoring and someone gets their nose out of joint in the church and they threaten to vote you out or whatever, I mean, that's tough, no question about that. But compared to some of the suffering that others are going through, in fact, losing their lives, it sort of pales in comparison. And for most of us, we live life fairly easy. We may work hard, but we have life very easy. But I want to tell you that even life as you and I are living it won't be successful if we don't learn those rhythms that Mrs. Rhino taught us in the previous chapel. You won't learn what redemptive suffering is if you don't get those rhythms down pat. So if we did nothing else but go away today and reviewed her message, that's really what you need today. Suffering is something I'm going to share with you in a bit that, that will happen to all of us. It's sort of not expected to be associated with the kingdom of God, and the kingdom has arrived, so why are we talking about suffering? But Jesus actually um, leads us into this, and post-resurrection talks about this. It's during those days between Easter and the Ascension that Jesus appears multiple times to his disciples. He, one of the times, <clears throat> excuse me, is in the upper room. He has his fearful disciples all gathered in there along with our famous doubting Thomas. Uh, he appears, as uh, Mrs. Rhino shared with us last time, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in all of their puzzlement about what all this means. He appears to heartbroken Peter and those beside the Sea of Galilee, and in each case, the disciples are somewhat puzzled, discombobulated, fearful, hesitant, hardly daring to hope, and yet not daring not to hope. Is it really you? And Thomas has to touch him to be sure. And finally, they are able to believe the impossible. It is Jesus in the flesh. And they are witness to the single greatest miracle since the original creation itself. In fact, they are witnessing the birth of the new creation. The Son himself stood with us in the likeness of our sinful selves, yet without sin, and in so doing, achieved the rescue of humanity and the world. Now that Jesus has beaten sin, Satan, and death, what's to stop him from going all the way and bringing all the kingdoms of the earth under his rule? And James and John may have been the one to voice this earlier, but no doubt all the disciples were thinking that they would have some kind of privileged place in that new kingdom. Why else had Jesus called them and set them apart to be with him? And wasn't it high time anyway that God put things right in the world? Wasn't it time that he fulfilled his promises to Abraham and to David? Isn't that why he came? So their question for Jesus is quite logical. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now they're not by this time, they are not filled with doubt and questions about did he rise from the dead, where is he, what's happened? They've settled that question. They're ready for the next step. Will you now restore God's shalom to creation and Israel to its right place at the head of a new world order? 
And as Jesus spends those precious 40 days with them, more and more they believe that suffering and anguish and loss is past. That all belongs to the old age. But glory and joy and peace and victory is present. That belongs to the new age and the kingdom. And Jesus, after all, is still talking kingdom. So it looks like it's still a go. But Jesus doesn't give them quite the answer that they're looking for. Instead of the kingdom fully realized now, they are going to be witnesses to the kingdom. And instead of a new heaven and a new earth right now, that witnessing mission is fraught with the potential for real suffering. Is that a whole lot different than what they've had already? During those 40 days, in the midst of the forgiveness and restoration and new hope, Jesus sounds a discordant note. On the one hand, Jesus is restored to them, and even Peter is restored to Jesus. And all of this is such fantastically good news that at times they have to pinch themselves to believe it. On the other hand, in the midst of this too-good-to-be-true news, Jesus predicts that hard times are still going to come. He says to Peter, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know about what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus reminds him, follow me. Now, I'll tell you, if I were writing this, I would never have put death and glory in the same sentence. Suffering and I don't get along. And I really don't know of anyone that actually gets excited about suffering. But Jesus is a realist, and he doesn't sugarcoat life. So there is also that uncomfortable heads up that he gives his disciples before the cross, but that apparently applies to after the resurrection and after Pentecost in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify. For you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. He knows that suffering can really scare you off. And as we've been studying in Reformation Church history, uh, there has been more than one faithful follower of Christ who in the face of torture and death has recanted and denied the faith. Some of them recanted of the recantation. But it's tough. It takes special grace. He goes on. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. I wonder if he has Saul in mind there. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. There's just a theological note I want to clarify here before we get into my two points. 
Sin always results in some kind of suffering, and that's the world we're in. And the other thing that we won't be covering this morning, I need to clarify, are all the kinds and causes of suffering and all the ways of responding to it and all the very many good things that can't actually come out of it. We're going to take a very narrow view this morning. There will be all, pla- all kinds of places in this message where it's going to be begging for further elaboration, but we can't do it this morning. So just to forewarn you. But that also should encourage you because it means we won't be here all day. <laughs> I don't want to be the one guilty of making myself late for my own class. So, <laughs> Suffering always involves loss, a kind of death, from final loss, spiritual and physical death, to partial losses like loss of health, loss of job, justice, loss of a fair deal, loss of your rights, loss of love, loss of faithfulness, loss of a marriage, loss of hope. All kinds of losses happen to us as a result of sin. Suffering has its source in sin, either my sin or someone else's. And like sin, it involves the absence of something good. Every form of sin results in some kind of suffering. If I'm unkind to you, I refuse to give you, if I refuse to give you what I owe you, I rob you of the care you need in order to flourish. I deny you something that I was given responsibility to provide on behalf of God. To that extent, I rob you of the fullness of life that God intended for you. And life is all about participating with God in his life of outgoing, self-giving love. God delegates to you and I the privilege and responsibility to pass along these grace gifts which he has placed in our hands in trust. But when we cling to them and we hoard them for our own use, we are refusing to be human to bear the image of God. And we cause suffering in both others and ourselves. Suffering accompanies sin all the way back to the fall in the garden. Sin embedded itself in the human and non-human world forward from the fall. Sin and suffering that it causes are a hallmark of the old age. So when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, he's announcing the arrival of the new age and the end of sin and suffering. Sinners are supposed to be judged and excluded Saints are to inherit the perfect peace and provision of the new heaven and the new earth. And yet Jesus himself warns that we will still have suffering here and now. The kingdom in its spiritual presence and power has arrived in Christ and with the Holy Spirit. But the kingdom in its physical structure is yet future. There are just two main points now that I want to emphasize this morning. First one is that kingdom work will entail suffering. And the second one will be that redemptive suffering, however confirms your place in the kingdom. So first, kingdom work will entail suffering. We had the time. We could read uh, Matthew chapter 10, but read it sometime. The reason why kingdom work will entail suffering in this life, it's because the world around us still hates the holy. The world does not understand true loving. God gives. The world takes. God blesses the world with life. The world bites the hand that feeds it. God cares. The world could care less. To the extent that you and I share in God's kind of life, which longs to bless the other, to that extent the world will hate you and try to snuff you out. And it won't do you or I any good to try to fathom all the reasons for this. There are reasons, but it could drive you crazy trying to figure them all out because sin is inherently irrational. 
Jesus said, they hated me without reason, and they'll hate you and I in the same way. C.S. Lewis was right when he said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. But love is what it's all about. As Lewis put it, love is the business of heaven. So after Jesus' solemn warnings, we know how the story of love poured out continues in the book of Acts, right after Pentecost, after announcing the most important news that anyone will ever hear. Peter and John land in prison in Acts 4, and, in the, and the Jewish high court puts them on trial. Again, in chapter 5, the apostles, presumably the twelve, are put in public jail, and then they face the Sanhedrin again, and then they receive a flogging, and then they're released with all kinds of dire warnings. Keep this up, we're going to kill you. Stephen, in chapter 7, witnesses to the hard-hearted Jews and the Jewish leaders, and they stone him to death with Saul's approval. But all this suffering is not merely the disciples' suffering. They are suffering on behalf of Christ and Christ's kingdom. In fact, through them, Christ is extending his own reach into the world. So Paul can reassure the Philippians that it has been granted to them on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. And he tells the Colossians that his own suffering is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It used to bother me when I read that first as a young Christian because it sounded like what Christ did on the cross wasn't enough to save us. That's not what Paul means. He means that Christ in us is still suffering as he tries to tell the world about the kingdom and about the new life that he's offering them. And in fact, as long as you and I are carrying out his mission and he's doing it through us, we are on the front lines, we're caught in the middle, we will suffer. And that's what Paul's talking about. In other words, in us, Christ is still at work. And Christ and his mission are such, of such supreme importance and of such supreme glory that Paul and the other disciples and all the other disciples, not just the twelve, consider it joy to be counted worthy to suffer for that name. Yes, the kingdom work is going to entail suffering in this life, but counterintuitively, redemptive suffering also confirms your place in the kingdom. There's a counterintuitive connection between suffering and kingdom glory. Romans 8:17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed, I, I, every time I have read this, I always wish he hadn't stuck that if in there, because back in my severe doubting days, I was quite sure that it probably didn't include me. But anyway, he said, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And boy, did that puzzle me. What do you mean I have to share in his sufferings? I thought he did it on our behalf. Why do I have to suffer? And how is my suffering going to somehow work into my redemption. I thought that was a settled question. I didn't like this verse. It's another one of those verses that I wouldn't have read, or wouldn't have written, rather, if I had had the choice. But as I've thought about it, I think I see a little light. Sharing in his suffering means that we're living his life. If we live as real Christians, the world will hate us, and they will try to snuff us out. They'll try to make us pay for it. For whatever reason, it's irrational, but that's what they'll do. If we are sharing in his suffering, it means we have been called to belong to him. 
We have been called to join his mission, and it means that we are sharing in his life. Thus, when the world attacks us, it is attacking Christ in us. So for Paul, then, there's no such thing as being a real Christian and not running up against sin and Satan and other people that want to uh, do, um, do you harm. Because the world hates the holy, it hates those who are living for Christ. In a similar way, there is a counterintuitive connection between suffering and comfort. And again, I'm listing these things to you. We don't have the time to explore them. But 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For just as we share abundantly, and he lists those in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, just how much he's suffering. For if just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Again, there is this counterintuitive connection, connection between glory and suffering and hope. And I want to read this passage to you from Romans 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I like it so far. And not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Well, no, Paul, do we have to? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character or approval, as it is sometimes translated. And character or approval, hope. And hope, in turn, doesn't disappoint us because God's love, the love He feels for us, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit witnesses with our spirit. You're my child. In Paul's theology, in Jesus' theology, in Peter's theology, and if you read 1 Peter, you read a whole lot about suffering. You can't be a true Christian and miss out on suffering in this world. It'll catch up with you somewhere. At the same time, neither can you be a true Christian and miss out on the glory of the resurrected life. And again, Romans 6, 1-4 will help you with that. The future glory is so beyond our imagination that Paul says our present sufferings, however bad they are, are not worthy to be compared with it. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I have to say here that suffering by itself doesn't automatically ensure your place in the kingdom. Unsafe people suffer too, but it doesn't somehow point to the fact that they belong to Christ and the kingdom. There is a secret to ensuring that, hope brings, that suffering brings hope. It's not a well-kept secret. It's not easily understood, however. One thing that suffering can do for us, among many other things, but one important thing, it can act like a discipline. It can help to break my hold on the world, on my little comforts, my pleasures, my false securities. Just as importantly, it helps to break the world's hold on me. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. In fact, Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to get our attention. Suffering properly handled drives us to Christ and to him alone. 2 Corinthians 9 and 10. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. It's a messenger of Satan, meant, I guess, to keep him humble. That's how he interprets it. And he asked Jesus three times, would you please take this away? I don't need this right now. I've got all the suffering I can handle. Just read 2 Corinthians and see how much suffering Paul goes through. 
And Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, which immediately leads Paul to conclude, when I am weak, then I am strong. So be it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. He had a rough time in Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If you cling to your suffering as your main reality, it will destroy your soul. If in your suffering you give yourself and your suffering constantly back to Jesus... He will make it redemptive, a means of grace. One thing that redemptive suffering achieves, it keeps us from thinking that this world is the final stop. It keeps us focused on ultimate meanings, ultimate purpose, and not immediate pleasures. It keeps us anchored firmly in Christ alone, not in shaky, false securities. And it's precisely for this reason that redemptive suffering achieves in us approval, Christ-likeness, certainty of hope. Now, I'm going to stick this into this message. Uh, It needs a message by itself. But I need to acknowledge this. I hate to, but it's true. We expect that the world's going to hate us and misuse us. Jesus warned us of that. But tragically, when the world gets into the church, into individual hearts of Christians, to one degree or another, I'm not saying they're not Christians, when the world gets into the way we do business in the church and in our religious institutions. There is suffering in the body. These are wounds caused by friends, jabs from fellow believers, betrayals of trust by caregivers. And that's the hardest suffering of all to spare because you don't expect it from within the household of faith. And to to use Wesley, who was speaking in a different context, Here, Christ is wounded in the house of his friends. That's a great tragedy. I can tell you, as can anyone here who has spent much time with fellow believers or any time in active ministry, that the hardest burden to bear is when your own turn on you, when those from whom you expect kindness give you rudeness, when those who you expect to include you exclude you. When those who are supposed to have your back desert you and campaign against you. It was not very long into the life of the early church before even some of those in in those earliest congregations turned against their leaders. Read the Corinthian letters to see how they treated Paul. Paul tells Timothy that in Asia he was deserted by everyone in the province of Asia. But then he adds, But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. That's the secret to redemptive suffering. That's what Paul had in mind when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Sometime read 2 Corinthians 4 and get a further unpacking of the kind of suffering he went through. Whether our hardships are caused by sinful people in the world or sometimes even inadvertently, not because they mean to, by fellow Christians, the answer is the same. Find your identity and reality and strength in Christ alone. You will be an overcomer if you do it that way. Now, sometimes I need to say this for some of you. 
Sometimes when you're in the crucible of suffering, and sometimes that can be from your own inner pain that the suffering is coming. Your emotions will not obey your head. And they will scream at you that all that talk about greater glory to come is just a pipe dream. And as you think about it, it just seems to dissipate like a puff of smoke and it doesn't seem real to you. In times like that, your theology can feel useless. But I'd like to reassure you that just because your theology is not based on your private wishes or your present feelings, but on the Word of God, on the fact of Jesus and all He is for you, whether you feel like it or not, because you are not, after all, alone with your emotionally obscure view of reality, you will find, if you listen very close and you seek Him, you will find the Spirit, Holy Spirit, witnessing with your spirit down deep beneath the conscious pain and suffering, and you will find the all-powerful, all-faithful God abides with you and in you and in your pain, and that just as Jesus overcame the dark hour of the cross, so you too will overcome. Pain can only defeat you if you allow Satan to deceive you into thinking that you are alone. Now, you and I are going to suffer between here and the next life. Some of the suffering may be physical, some may be emotional. In a corrupt world, both the righteous and the unrighteous suffer. And sometimes the suffering is caused by those within our own ranks, sometimes even from Christians who allow some measure of sin into their lives. lives. But the righteous have a choice in their suffering that the unrighteous don't have. For the unrighteous, suffering here is but a precursor to much worse suffering to come. For the righteous, suffering here, suffering that is submitted and yielded back to the Father. Read 1 Peter 2.23. It promises an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians again. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Not all suffering here makes sense at the time. And some of it we may never understand. But the key is not so much to understand it as to give ourselves to the Father so that He may work in us the overcoming character that inherits the kingdom. And we have Paul's wise words. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. May the Lord bless you.